Good morning. We're going to talk about anxiety. So let's take a breath. Thank you. Anxiety is a natural response to change or tension or uncertainty. Family systems theory is a renowned psychological tool that aims to understand individuals as members of a group or system. And this theory teaches that while there is healthy anxiety in all systems, toxic anxiety, whether in a family, a church, or a nation, is contagious. It's sort of like good versus bad bacteria in your gut. We need some bacteria present, yes, but if the bad bacteria is unchecked, it can ruin a whole system. Unhealthy responses to anxiety lead to defensive actions based on preservation, which spreads the virus of fear and paralyzing anxiety to others quickly, saturating the whole system. Individuals stuck in anxiety build impermeable boundaries around them or their group, like when you refuse to listen to another person's point of view or entertain their values as valid. Those walls cut off people from the sacred work of being imperfectly and creatively human and building beloved community while in relationship together. Family systems theory articulates differentiation as the antidote. And differentiation is the compassionate ability to hold personhood and one's emotions without getting sucked into the fear and anxious um, in a toxic system. It isn't to be ignorant of what's going on inside or outside of you. It's the ability to be aware of all of it and let the wisest voice rule decision-making. Compassion allows us to move back into the tension and dwell there, resilient and well-differentiated. Right now, I am practicing hospitality and compassion with myself. I am a bundle of plurality in the here and now. This is my first sermon at Hope, and I am happy. And though I wasn't nervous earlier, I sure as heck am now. (laughs) I have some regular concerns, like I'm talking too fast or too loud or too soft. Also, I lost my voice this week, so I don't even know what I'm doing here. (laughs) But I'm doing my best, and I'm aware that I also feel odd sometimes holding leadership in a community I stick out from because of my skin or my culture or my age. And this isn't the first, nor will it be the last time I find myself called to do something that is out of my comfort zone or is stressful. I've been here before but I'm treating myself differently. Y'all, there are nerves, and there is anxiety, and there is stress present, and I'm all right with that. They can stay. To be here and hold leadership, to be in relationship with this church and deliver a sermon, even if I lose my place or stutter, oh my word, (laughs) that is ironic. Y'all, creativity and transformation happens in this messiness. For me and for you both. This messiness is truly for the betterment of all. And that shift is revolutionary. As I accept the nerves compassionately, I opt out of obsessing and ending up with anxiety as the only thing on my mind. Letting that be, I can be aware. I'm also feeling joy and pride 
and gratitude that I've made it to this point, to the point of sharing and speaking my heart from a pulpit with conviction. This is all that's going on in me here and now. Your turn. Scan yourself. What are all the feelings layered in you? Maybe you feel relaxed that you made it to church. Regret or frustration at what was said over Thanksgiving. Worried about the to-do list for the week or for the rest of the year. Maybe you're excited for the holidays coming up or fed up with the way your year has gone and desolate to imagine another year lived in pain or numbness. Today we're also discussing hospitality, the theme of our month. One more time. The final frontier of hospitality is not out there in committees or policies or advertising. Hospitality is born from within yourself. Much like how peace in the world is cultivated by peace in our hearts, hospitality starts with you at home. How you treat you. Is all of you welcomed? Not just when you're successful or have impressed someone. I'm asking, is all of you welcome in your inner psyche or your heart when the heaviness is knocking at the door? Are there disgraceful, embarrassing, or ugly or yucky parts of yourself you are still ignoring or trying to silence? This month's sermon series was following the book Five Secrets to Discover Before You Die. And the book labels its final step, or secret, being true to yourself. Now, to me, it kind of sounded like a tattoo regret getting on your ankle. But like many lofty inspirational statements, there is depth and wisdom to be found in it. Be true to yourself. Being true and honest with oneself is putting the feelings into words and welcoming them in. In the reading we had earlier, we heard the Buddhist story of the Buddha graciously having tea with Mara, the distractor and tempter, despite the venerable Ananda's resistance. Ananda thought to preserve his noble intentions and greatest good, the Buddha, he had to keep the confusion and chaos of his mind on the outside, that these two experiences should never meet, and heaven forbid they interacted. We're a lot like Ananda. When we see something undesirable on its way over, we are evolutionarily triggered to become anxious and defensive. However, what we resist persists. And the seemingly noble quest of, of survival through resisting reality bites us in the butt. Think of children. You've likely made this observation too, that calm, acknowledgement, and acceptance are de-escalators to a child's demand for attention. But their call for attention may be disruptive, like a tantrum, fighting with siblings, or throwing food. But I've also seen that when these undesirable actions are met with resistance, well, the ordeal turns into a lengthy battle. It intensifies with screaming and kicking or smarter ways of breaking rules. If we are not all right, we will get the message across. And to silence one avenue leads to escalated and passive-aggressive routes to express the mess that is present, but isn't welcomed. 
Glennon Doyle, an author and addict in recovery, said in an interview that when we are not encouraged to be truthful, quote, we end up sometimes telling our truth in different ways than words, dangerous ways. This was the food for me, the booze for me. I think we tell the truth with something. Everybody tells the truth with something. They say, I'm not fine with a credit card. Or they say, I'm not fine with overeating. Or they say, I'm not fine with booze, sex, or unkindness. Or whatever it is. Which is why it's so powerful when we can integrate those two selves and tell the truth. The story of what's going on on our inside with our words. End quote. What are you not eager to practice hospitality to that nevertheless comes knocking at your door? For myself, it was depression and trauma that demanded to be heard, and they were well past knocking when I was forced to confront them at 17 years old. By then, it was a heavy, dark, terrifying monster like Mara. I had to shut it out, I thought, and had spent years of my life stacking furniture against the door to keep it out. But the more I ignored, the harder it banged on the door, demanding to be seen and heard. At my lowest, I felt like I was using my body to push and keep with all my might that poor door shut from whatever was on the other side. It was a full-time job. When at 17 I cracked and I couldn't ignore her anymore, depression and trauma bursted into the room of my life. And I was surprised to find that the door she was behind didn't lead outside, but to a closet. What I was trying to keep out, I was really keeping deeper in me. I was trapping it. Over the years, I've built a relationship to depression and trauma. I was able to accept the reality that I was mentally ill and I needed help. And when trauma showed up in other ways, I had language to welcome her in and so as not to escalate the pain she was already in, be present with her. The Buddha was wise and compassionate to Mara and welcomed him in and asked deeply, Dear friend, how have you been? And now years in, I have given attention and a voice to my depression and trauma. And for example, I see trauma as a fevered 13-year-old me. Now, she ought never be in charge of anything, but it's hard now to be mad at her because I've taken time to listen to her. Her means of communication, well, they aren't great, but she is clearly hurting and desperately wants validation and love. Instead of shunning her, when I recognize it's trauma calling out, demanding attention, I bring her in, I offer her tea, and I say without judgment, Beloved, I'm listening. I'm here for you. Mrs. Atkins is my first grade teacher, and she modeled being present to me and my class constantly. In response to a student getting sick, tattletaling, or crying about a problem, our teacher would hug them on the shoulder while saying, problems, problems, problems. She has been teaching for decades by the time I was her student, but when I walked into a steel pole outside and came to her crying and holding the lump on my forehead, she still had more compassion for me. My shoulders deserved to be hugged, and I was reassured my pain was valid. And she said, problems, problems, problems. The greatest gift another person can offer is non-anxious, non-judgmental, 
presence and the dark and messy lows of living. Think back on your life and the times when someone was gracious and compassionate to sit with you through one of your darkest days. The moment when a friend, parent, minister, maybe a stranger or a mentor, even a teacher or neighbor simply sat with you on the floor of a bathroom, outside a doctor's office, or on the curb of the street. These were crucial moments when compassion made space for what was. You could be vulnerably, honestly, broken, sorrowful, and scared. There's no solution to a loved one dying. There's no solution to having been abused or given a diagnosis. But when someone extended a branch of solidarity and sat with you in the unknowable void of it all and made space for expressing any emotions you may remember, that, that was an instance of grace. A desperately needed gulp of compassionate water to soothe the dry and lonesome throat, aching for care and community. That was love, or compassion, or the divine source of goodness, call it God, showing up in the chaos of life and pain through the kindness of another. That's what personal, that's what pastoral care and a part of therapy is. It's giving you, or us, the space to practice being with all that is present. That is a gift to ministry, and it's a service we can offer ourselves. You, you can be love and compassion and goodness to yourself. Hospitality and differentiation from toxic anxiety starts with how you treat you. The practice of softening and listening to yourself, if not a habit, can sound like a daunting task. But I invite you this week to pause and ask yourself, what are you feeling? Like the Buddha, invite those emotions in and listen to them. Explain what's going on from their perspective. Be kind to yourself and the emotions you uncover. Assure them you are listening and are here to care for them. Then select the compassionate voice to take over. Allow anger, fear, frustration, or disappointment, even sadness, to rest to their feet and heal as the compassionate and whole part of yourself leads your decision-making. It takes repetition to build the habit of being compassionate to oneself. No matter how you go about the practice of being true to yourself, I implore you to do so with hospitality and compassion. For it is in the manner which you interact with yourself we will all see rippled into society for generations to come. We give away our offering plate every week.